Hi, I'm Shane Safir. And I'm Alcine Mumby, and this is Street Data Pod, where we dream with you about next-generation schools that affirm, love, and value every learner. Here we have conversations about healing, hope, and listening at the margins. This season, folks, we are focusing on the question of what does the street data model look like in action? And today we are so excited to be joined by two illustrious educators and leaders, Jennifer Gonzalez of the Cult of Pedagogy and Amanda Liebel, an extraordinary teacher that I've gotten to know in the past year from British Columbia. Welcome, Jennifer and Amanda. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. Nice to hear your voices again and see your beautiful faces. So we're going to start with you, Jennifer. Can you tell us about this magic called Cult of Pedagogy (laughs) and um, how you gave birth to it? So I used to be a middle school language arts teacher. I taught right outside of D.C. and then where I am now in Kentucky. And then I stopped to have babies for a while. I started teaching at a local university working with pre-service teachers And at that point, I was just an instructor, and I knew that to really be a college professor, I was eventually going to have to go the PhD route. And right around that same time, I started learning some educational technology just to keep my teaching certification. And I was so extra in my grad classes. I was doing way more than I had to for the blog, and I realized that I liked doing that, and I wanted to keep teaching teachers online. So I never ended up going back to the classroom. I just started to do what I was doing with those pre-service teachers and converting that to blog posts, and then it turned into a podcast. This is Jennifer Gonzalez welcoming you to episode 212 of the Cult of Pedagogy podcast. I'm about to celebrate my 10-year anniversary next month, so, um, and it's just a website for, for teachers. My, I put all of my time now into helping teachers do their work better. That's amazing. Just to flex and humble brag a little, tell us how many people the content has reached and just like how that feels to you from this little dream you had. I mean, those numbers are so hard to quantify, but like just the podcast itself, it's a minimum of 40,000 downloads per episode. And there are some episodes that have been downloaded by like 70 to 80 if they're super (gasps) popular. I know. (laughs) That is so cool. It's really amazing. So Amanda, you are a new human to me, which is lovely because I love meeting new humans. And so I'm curious, who are you and what identities do you hold close to you? And what ways of being from your family, from your community, do you draw on to create the magic that is happening in your classroom? Yes, thank you. And thanks for having me. And again, holding space for these important conversations. I'd also like to just acknowledge that I'm here at school today at Constable Neil Bruce in West Kelowna, and that I am sitting on the unceded traditional territory of the Silks Okanagan people. Uh, Very important to know that I'm walking on land that was here before me and people that were here before me. So I'd like to honor that. Um, I'm a teacher. I'm a mom. I'm a friend. And I have always placed really high value on relationships. And it's only maybe been in the last few years that I could articulate why relationships are important. I always knew that they were important. But now that I'm seeing and feeling the connection and how that kind of moves us forward to our success and to our sense of belonging in places like schools, I can um, 
maybe process that information a little bit differently now. I am probably like a fourth generation Italian. And if you are from an Italian big family, you know that a fifth cousin is a first cousin. We just are all very close. And um, that's always kind of been rooted in me is to be, you know, connected and close. And so students in my space, I think, um, have a tendency to feel safe. I just actually heard from one of our counselors that they're quite shocked that a lot of our high anxiety students are mentioning that the drama room is one of their favorite spaces to be, which is um, sometimes the opposite of how students feel about being put on stage or, you know, presenting in front of others. But I don't have that expectation. I have the expectation that we walk into the space inclusively and with kindness and with open hearts and open minds. And I think the work follows after that. So Jennifer, I just wanted to locate kind of how we intersected around this project. So you read Street Data, you reached out to me and invited us onto your podcast, which was a great conversation. Then I think you came back to me and proposed this idea of producing a video series about the Street Data model that would really help teachers all over who are reading the book but need a little extra scaffolding to put the ideas into practice. How did this idea come to you? What struck you about the book that made you want to do this? And how does this collaboration we came up with um, really reflect your beliefs and values around PD for teachers? I, I get a lot of books. I get a lot of books brought to me, sent to me by people. And I don't think I, it was even sent to me. I think I just was already familiar with your work. And so when I first saw it, I thought, let me get this. And when I read it and started talking about it, I have never used so many superlatives to describe an approach. And I just kept saying, this is the most important book because I see mm. so many schools trying to fix yep. the problems that yep. they have yep. and not really succeeding. And your approach was so different because it was so organic. It was so ground up. It was so, people don't need any special programs or they don't have to buy anything. Mm. All of the resources right. they need are right there. And so after we talked, I thought, this is going to just fall into the pile of the other education books that, that teachers have if they don't realize. I mean, I could go on and on in the podcast about how great it was, but without really trying it themselves, I didn't think they were going mm -hmm. to get it. And unless they set aside the time to read it, which teachers don't mm -hmm. have to really read it carefully, they may not get it or they may not get it right. And so I just thought, let's go through this process. Because what I really want was for you and Jamila to just replicate yourselves a million times or create an <laughs> online course or something to help teachers. And I knew that you all didn't have time to do that. So I said, can we just film the work that you're already doing with a couple of volunteer schools who are willing to be vulnerable and have their whole process videotaped? So you all sent out applications. You got two willing schools who were really nice and diverse in terms of the challenges they were facing. And, um, and now that is an additional resource that I was really hoping to provide to you and Jamila, basically, so that you could then say, hey, if we can't work with you, go watch these videos. It shows, you know, a year's worth of work on the street data process. And once you understand that cycle, then it's like, then you can go and repeat it. But without understanding that and sort of seeing it in action, I could see teachers who say, we don't, I don't get it. Let's just move on and do what we've always been doing. So I felt like that having a video series could be an important part of training in terms of learning how to do it. I'm still such a fan and I still refer to it all the time when 
when, when schools are thinking, you know, how can we do this? I will give them some tips, but I'll say, really, what you actually need to do is just go through the street data process. Go read that book because that's, that is the stuff. <laughs> Thank you, Jennifer. It's really humbling to hear you talk about it. So Amanda, what was it like to be a part of this community of practice? And if you can, by way of story, just share a transformative moment for you or your team. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with Jennifer talking about process and maybe just being really rooted in it together in team as well was really beneficial for us. Uh, there were moments where we did maybe feel stuck at some times and having a team to unpack some of what we were hearing together was really useful. And then having also... Shane and Jamila to turn back on and process some of that together too was, yeah, very helpful. But I know it was really transformative for our team when we really sat down and started doing empathy interviews and really hearing the voices of the students um, and some of that data of maybe the lack of sense of the belonging at our school, the lack of safety, the lack of having a trusted adult. And those pieces are hard to hear as a teacher. Um, because we all, you know, we're doing our best, but sometimes we're not hearing those voices. And so to slow down and to really unpack that was really important for us. And I think that we've seen some more success from some of our students at the margins than we have in a long time. I'm curious, Jennifer, what did you notice or learn through witnessing this community of practice unfold? And what impact did it have um, for what you had hoped for? You know, one of the things that I learned right away was that it was not a quick process. And there was a lot of time spent kind of sinking into getting comfortable, getting vulnerable, getting to know, having everybody get to know themselves and their own backgrounds. And I think for schools that are saying, like, we have this problem, we need to fix it, they'll just keep rushing at other solutions that are faster that don't ultimately solve the problem and do waste a lot of time. And so it's hard for me as kind of a type A person to sort of sink into that slower stuff, but it was so valuable. It's such a cultural shift from basically the white supremacist stuff that we have already laid on our systems, which is just be productive, be punctual, be quick and be efficient. And then it's completely inefficient because it doesn't actually achieve anything. So that was a learning curve for me. Um, and it was also just seeing, I think this was such an important piece of the video too, was that it was, it was kind of messy. It was, you know, kind of false starts and then going back and thinking about it and, you know, uncovering things that, that our participants were not expecting to be the thing that they learned and then not really knowing what to do with that information at first. And I don't know, it was just, and also the solutions that the stakeholders that they interviewed, the students had for them were also not things that they expected, you know? And so realizing like, oh, could it be that simple that we just need to do this and it's gonna make a huge change? Like all of those things um, were just really um, kind of nice surprises basically. Um, and also just in terms of did it have the impact, I don't know yet. You know, we don't really know who's watching these videos, if they're getting, I, I, YouTube comments can be horrifying and mean, so I just immediately turn them off. So we don't even know. <laughs> um, we don't know who who's getting this stuff and whether it's having an impact, but watching the two schools reach a point where 
I think for both schools, they also didn't make the leaps and bounds that sort of they thought they might at the beginning, but they both seemed to get to a place where it was sort of like, okay, now we understand how to go through this process and we made a dent. And so now we really, they sort of had just started to get momentum basically when we, when we stopped. And that was probably an important lesson for people watching too, that you're not necessarily going to have dramatic changes right away. It's a, it's a process and a mindset. Amanda, I want to go back to something you said about how the data can sometimes be hard to hear for teachers. And that, so that came up yesterday. I spent the day in the Seattle region in Puget Sound with Jamila training. Well, the morning was sort of like a public learning culmination for teams that had done similar to you all, that had kind of gone through the cycle all year. And then the afternoon was the launch of a second cohort. Um, But this, in the public learning, this question really came up about, you know, how do we prepare other teachers for hearing some of this when there's a natural inclination toward defensiveness or um, pushing back, counter-narrative, all of that. And so I'm curious what you learned about that, about how to curb teacher defensiveness or how to cultivate empathy for some of the street data that's actually quite hard to absorb. I I think that um, really grounding ourselves and knowing that this work comes from having a heart of service and knowing that it's always a reflective practice um, is helpful because these kids are really looking to lean on somebody that is going to deeply listen to them and create a space for them. And um, I think it takes practice to not get into a place of defensiveness and maybe being in community and working as a team is a part of that work and being able to unpack it together. Because sometimes our own subconscious, our own ego and our own voice gets in the way. Facts. Right. I mean, and it's just that is one of the things that I tell people all the time in training is that when it comes to sort of your classroom environment, the probably the number one factor in a teacher is do they have that ability to receive feedback and reflect on it? And feedback can come in so many different forms. It can be actual feedback, but it can also just be students being disinterested in a lesson. And so many times teachers take all of that so personally, and then it turns into all other kinds of problems. So just the ability to go into this profession knowing I don't know how to do this well. Most of us are still learning as we go. And it's, you're constantly going to be iterating and getting better. And if you can't be that kind of a person, if you're too much of a perfectionist, it's just not the profession for you. Because that perfectionism and that defensiveness is going to not only mess up your craft, but it is going to hurt so many students in the process who won't even know what happened. And it's just that humility that that makes you a, a, a lifelong learner instead of just saying, I'm done, I know how to do this job, and that's it. And I I say often that, like, just like how doctors don't always make the best patients, teachers don't always make the best learners. And I understand there's so many pressures for us to get it right, but there is no getting it right if the kiddos aren't doing well. And by doing well, it's like if they're not well in their being. And I think that's the other beautiful approach to street data. It's not just thinking about the approaches or the shifts that are going to get higher achievement on external outcomes. It's how are we actually attending to the whole child, the whole human 
as a learner. In the last part of this conversation, we want to shift into a kind of a deep conversation around pedagogy. Um, Cult of Pedagogy, of course, is the moniker of Jennifer's um, podcast and, and blog. And But we're going to start with you, Amanda, as the teacher among us, the practicing teacher, and just ask you to talk about any concrete pedagogical shifts that have emerged from this experience um, at the classroom level or even on the school level. I appreciate this process so much, and I can see a shift happening even from the first year where it maybe felt a little bit more mechanical going through the chapters and working through the processes and then it feeling a little bit more natural and organic like Jennifer was talking about and I'm feeling like it's more a part of my um, pedagogy and my philosophy of teaching and my ways of being as a teacher. It doesn't feel so siloed in the parts of street data. It feels like it ebbs and flows a little bit more naturally. Um, but there is something really groundbreaking when you sit down and you listen to those students at the margins and you learn to walk beside them and listen to the things that they're desiring in your space that may not have been working that you thought have been working for them in the past. And I've got um, a solid group of students that we've been doing co-generative dialogue with throughout the entire year this year. And I actually was able to use some of the language from our conversations that we'd had just even this week with one of our students. She is one of our Black students at the school, one of very few. Um, to give you some context of our school, we are the highest number of Indigenous population. We are situated right on the West Bank First Nation Reserve land. And yet we've got this really beautiful diversity group that is forming and putting some student voice and agency to the things that they'd like to see in the building. And so with some of that dialogue that I've had with this particular girl, she was talking about, you know, I'd like to do my English paragraphs maybe about like BIPOC and put it in a little display case and, you know, have some more diversity at the school when you walk in and you can see some more information for Black Lives Matter and all things. So she did some paragraph writing around that. Well, yesterday she approached me and said, I have a Spanish presentation and I just can't do it. And I said, well, I do know that you're quite passionate about activism. And I don't know if I've ever heard a female activist say, I can't. And I'm hearing you say I can't. And she goes, oh, Mrs. Liebel, you can't just use my words against me now. And I said, well, it's just a little food for thought. I'm just wondering if your actions are matching your words. And she came back down afterwards and was able to celebrate that she did her Spanish presentation. And um, I think the deeper that we know these students and the things that speak to their hearts and that motivate them and that allow them to show up, you know, we can use those as tools to to keep moving them forward. And so that's like a classroom experience. Um, we've seen that on many levels at the school, but we're seeing system changes. We've been working alongside another sister middle school here, Glen Rosa Middle School. And we've had a group of teachers that were interested in learning the street data process. And so we've been unpacking that with them. And that's kind of also helped, you know, our teachers at our school go through it again and reground us in the work. We're seeing it at the systemic level at our school. We've got carved out time for teachers to have empathy interviews through focused student support. Um, that's a big shift for administration to work that into a schedule. That is a big um, decolonization shift as well, I would say. And 
We're also seeing it at the district level. I was just at a symposium where our district was using street data language. They had some of the diagrams of the heart and the sense of belonging and identity in there. And I think that we're moving in a really great direction. And I think that there's more work that can even be had. You know, our conversations around what schools could be is a really great place to land and to start with our district. And I think that we can keep moving forward with like, we're not just creating these lessons for our students, but now can create these lessons with our students. Can we sit down and listen to them and then, you know, create these divine <laughs> moments together so that they have that agency in building of this. So that's where we're at. What a beautiful example of a warm demander. I think that's the piece that feels missing the most to me is the simple well, and like the simple, elegant how, the pedagogy, right, that is coupled with these big curriculum ideas. So I don't know, Amanda, if you could say more about when you say leaning into the curriculum, like what you would want as a teacher on the curricular side. That was a shift for me because I always thought that being vulnerable, especially on the teacher's stance, was just an emotional part of like opening your heart and letting them see parts of you or hearing things from you that maybe you were holding close and you weren't sharing with them because you were the adult in the room. And now I see vulnerability as like the risk taking of maybe indigenizing our spaces or shifting our systems or, right? Like I just, I feel like it is so much bigger than just emotional. It's just trying something that you're not sure is going to definitely work. And that is that puts you in a vulnerable spot. Oh, you're ready to be a leader, Amanda. I got to tell you that. That's le- <laughs> and I also had a great coach hint, it was Shane, who taught me that like, as a leader, the best thing you can do as a leader is to say, actually, I don't know, right? Like, I don't know. And together, we can figure this thing out. Part of the problem in our systems is we pluck amazing teachers like Amanda out, right? And I do wonder about an evolving emerging model where you're still teaching like lab a couple lab classrooms but having time to build the capacity of other teachers which you're already doing but you probably don't have a lot of time for it but that also points to why that job that system is so messed up if people don't want to go into administration because that job can be soul-sucking or it lacks the creativity of being in the classroom there shouldn't you shouldn't have to choose one or the other we shouldn't have to lose good leaders because the job is so unattractive and that's a colonial mindset, right? Where things are so separated by rigidly hierarchical and distinct versus like yesterday, Jamil and I were talking about street data as this ecology where everything is interdependent and connected and the lines get blurred, right? So a model where principals teach and teacher leaders lead, I feel like is a more decolonized model of school change. Okay. All right. Final question from me is, what do you see as the essential elements of a pedagogy of student voice? And I'll just footnote this by saying I really loved your blog a couple years back around discussion methods. It was like seven or 10. I was like, mm. yes, like, because mm -hmm. I do think 
this is one of the biggest pain points when we walk into classrooms is teachers, students in rows, receptive, the banking model from Frere, and teachers don't necessarily know, have deft, like, strategies. I think that that's, that's a big piece of it. It's, it's rhetorical strategies and discussion strategies and um, even... I mean, I keep thinking of taking it beyond the classroom too, like having students understand that we're going to give you skills and tools that we can use within the classroom when you're using your voice, but how can that really impact your life in your community outside? Talking about advocating for ourselves within within, within work situations, activism, um, you know, how do we actually affect change to benefit ourselves and our, and our families and our communities? It, this isn't just an assignment, so this really... So I think that that piece too, but yeah, there's so many practical tools and skills that people who actually have a voice in the world already sort of have them. They have them maybe because it was part of their education. You know, I think about the Harkness table at private expensive schools that kids get to sit around and have these great conversations. I remember seeing one outside of the school of a guy I was dating and he said, that was my English class. And I was like, you've got to be freaking kidding me. What did you do at that table? He said, you know, we just had great conversations and I thought your education was so different from mine. But those people immediately know that they have a seat at the table anywhere. And if we can give all kids that feeling and the tools and the confidence to be able to do that stuff. That's, that's. <laughs> you know, one of the things that I learned as a, as a humanities teacher um, at my time at Fannie Lou in the South Bronx was also that, um, conversations, Socratic seminars, the, the, the ways in which kids were able to talk about things that were connected to the curriculum or not. Like I used conversation and, the, and literally kids hearing their voice as a way for them to find their voice in writing, right? So when it came time and the kids were like, well, I don't know how to say that. How would you say it if, we were at, at, if you were talking with a friend across the table? That made me think of something because it made me think about the empathy interviews. And some of the ones that we actually watched recordings of, it seemed like a lot of times kids at the beginning, at least of those, really had to be convinced that they could be honest and didn't even always have the language to say, can I actually give you all feedback? So I think that's another important component of student voice. I mean, it's one thing to say, what is your favorite pizza topping? And that's like a cute way to have student choice or whatever, but like actually being really honest about something and learning how to do that in a way that is not harmful, that is, you know, you're still respecting yourself and other people and trusting that your voice actually matters in the space that you're in, like that's a huge hurdle, um, no matter what the curriculum is for the, the relationship to actually be built on that kind of a trust was, you know, something I saw in these empathy interviews. And I would imagine that a lot of the teachers you work with have that experience with students where it's like, really, can I really tell you what I think? into our lightning round. We're always trying to get better at the lightning part of this, so it's just a few words, 10 seconds or less. 
All right. Starting with you, Amanda. You're called to listen deeply to someone, but what they have to say is triggering. What's the first thing you do? Talk less. Smile more. Jen. My first thing would be to tell them that I'm feeling triggered. I'm Here's why. And just be super transparent with what the emotion is rather than trying to um, cover it up. So we're navigating incredibly complex times to be alive and human. What is a practice or a way of being in the world that keeps you grounded in the face of oppression and resistance? Grounding ourselves and listening to other educators, other leaders, walking alongside other people who have the same values in education. For me, it's really just constantly reminding myself that I'm, I'm not done. Even if I've sort of reached a level of understanding about a certain idea or a certain kind of oppression or something, and to never think that there isn't more to learn and trying to continually stay humble in that. All right. Um, Amanda, what is one form of street data you think every educator needs to gather? Student voice, because I think it's really attainable. For me, it's just, it's the whole practice of the empathy interview, of inviting students and other stakeholders into that space and, and just having them talk to you about what their experience is. You just never know what's going to come up. And it's such rich data. I love the accessibility of both those answers. So on the flip side, what is a type of data, Amanda, that you feel is overused in education? I think we are moving further away from standardized testing, but I think we can also um, refine our practices with formative assessment like quizzes. I think grades. Love it. All right. Final lightning round question. A great learning experience will. How would you complete that, Amanda? A great learning experience will um, shift your pedagogy forever, will influence your philosophy on teaching, and will keep moving you towards change if you've got passion and purpose. I love that you answered that from a teacher perspective and not a student. Okay. Jennifer. Do things, learn more, tell other people about it. All right, ladies, Jennifer and Amanda, so grateful to have this time with you and to continue to walk alongside you, to use Amanda's phrase, and learn from and with you. So appreciate you both being here today. Thank you for, again, I've thanked you before for writing the book to start with, but thank you for continuing to, to find ways to, to help teachers learn this, this process and this approach. I think it's just genius. I agree. It is so foundational that everything that I read after I feel like connects in other ways to it, but it really is groundwork for shifting mindset and moving teachers in a direction that I think is really necessary with where we're at with, you know, trauma-informed practices that we're trying to include. I think all of it will happen holistically and naturally if people ground themselves in this work. Street Data Pod is executive produced and hosted by Shane Safir and Alcine Mumby. The senior producer is Jess Alvarenga, and our production manager is Jamie Valle. Thank you to Zoe Morgan for social media support, and a special shout out to Rocky Rivera for our theme music. If you want to get a copy of Street Data, visit Amazon, Corwin Press, or better yet, a local independent or black-owned bookstore. At Corwin's website, use discount code STREETDATA, all caps, to get 20% off. If you like the show, please take a moment to subscribe and give us a five-star review. And if you found us rambling or fumbling over our words, remember, we can't be articulate all of the time.
grew up in the DMV area. So where, where in DC were you or outside of DC? I was in Silver Spring, Maryland at White Oak Middle School. I went to White Oak Middle School. <laughs> you did not. Oh, my for goodness. For grade okay. seven and grade eight, I sure did. And then I went to Springbrook oh for one year. Goodness. And then I moved yes, to Howard County. Where... That is, you were, <laughs> oh, my gosh. I did. I started teaching there in 1996. 